Well, as Chelsea just mentioned this morning, we kick off a new series, a study of uh, the book of James. But she was talking to God and not to you, so you may not have heard that, so I mentioned that again. Um, I've been looking forward to this, and, uh, and it's been a blessing this summer to be pouring myself into this book. There's a lot of people that have been uncomfortable with this uh, book. Uh, they, people in the Reformed tradition tend to be uncomfortable with it because uh, people look at it and think that uh, James is disagreeing with, uh, with Paul. Other people are uncomfortable with Paul, so they love James. Um, and so in the Christian church, we just seem to have this level of, of confusion. Uh, just as a little bit of background, James was written well before Paul. James is the first epistle that was written entirely. And I would tell you, and I hope that you'll see, there is no disagreement between Paul and between James. It's two individuals who love the Lord Jesus Christ who are writing to specific people uh, about what they're perceiving and uh, in, 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 in the current uh, environment that they're in and in the specific lives of the people that they're addressing. And so they're addressing them very specifically. It's not like uh, Paul later on picked up James's letter and said, let me correct this. The short of it is that they're writing to two different kinds of people. And James, as we're going to see, is writing to people who um, essentially have their, their doctrine down, but they're not doing anything with it. Paul is writing to people who continue to struggle with this whole idea that somehow we can perform and maybe get to the level that God will accept us, and he's reminding us that we are justified by God's grace through faith alone. In other words, Paul is writing to the typical evangelical, and James is writing to Presbyterians who have their doctrine down and don't do anything with it. And so my hope is as we have this to go through this series that you will be encouraged and that you will ask questions in areas where you feel there's some sort of discontinuity. You'll wrestle with that and talk with us about it. Just as we've done when we began our series in Romans and in our series in Hebrews, let's encourage you to do this, that to read through this letter, which is a lot shorter than the other ones have been, once per week for every week that we are studying this. So take a chapter a day, you're done, uh, and each week that we're in it, and you will see how God is speaking to you in ways that you would not expect, reinforcing things that you understand and bringing to light things that uh, perhaps you haven't considered. With that, this morning, uh, we're going to go with a highly ambitious one verse um, as we enter into this series. James 1.1. 1, 1. Hear the word of our Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. The word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let's rejoice. Let us rejoice. For in your great love for us, you have not only redeemed us, but you have spoken to us that we may know ourselves to know you, that we may live our lives in a way that you have designed them to be lived, and in that, find joy and true freedom. And so, Lord, as we consider your word, as we begin this series, we pray you would speak to us. Open our minds that we might hear you. Open our hearts that we may long to hear you. Open our eyes that we may see our need to hear you, that we may be changed, even as you have promised, 
our lives more and more lived in conformity to Christ Jesus. This is our desire. This is your promise. And for that we rejoice. So bless us now. I pray in Christ. Amen. John Calvin begins the Institutes of the Christian Religion, his 1500 plus magnus opus, um, with the topic of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. He opens with these words. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. As one of the Calvin scholars says, Calvin firmly believed that without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. In other words, without really knowing ourselves, we don't know our need of God, and therefore we don't recognize what God has done. And so therefore, without knowing ourselves truly, we can't really know God as he has revealed himself. And what Calvin is doing at the beginning of the Institutes and in all of his teaching is reflecting the importance of having a healthy and yet uh, realistic self-identity. Now, identity is something that our culture is fascinated with. In fact, it's almost an obsession in the present environment. It was just a couple of years ago that the word identity was uh, voted uh, as word of the year by dictionary.com because identity is so important. People want to know, who am I? Or sometimes it's, I want to know, people want to know who it is that I um, am presenting myself to be. Uh, One author who was a uh, lawyer or lobbyist, but don't hold that against him, I guess. I don't know anything else about him, but I thought his words were uh, appropriate. Andrew Blunt defines identity as this, our controlling self-understanding, which in turn will shape our concepts of worth, value, emotional and mental health, actions, and relationships. Let me say that again, because I think it's important that we understand what identity is, and I think this is a a good definition of it. Identity is our controlling self-understanding, which in turn will shape our concept of worth, value, emotional and mental health, our actions and our relationships. In other words, what he's saying is having a sober, realistic identity shapes not only how we feel about ourselves, but everything else in our lives, our actions, our emotions, our relationships. Identity is incredibly important. Another writer, a man named Bob Shank, who was the founder of the Barnabas Group, gives gives an illustration of of why identity is so important. He says, if you were a banker and you go to work one day and your bank has just merged and it doesn't need you anymore, your identity has just been taken away from you. If your identity is being a husband and your wife just fell in love with her tennis instructor and lets you know that she wants half and is out the door, your identity is gone. The question of who we are is one of those profound questions that even successful people have not necessarily answered. In fact, our discovery of identity is complicated by our success. The more successful we are in our fields, the more most people tend to put us in a niche. In other words, the more successful we are, the more people tend to perceive us only as that one dimension or within those few dimensions. And so we see not only the importance of identity, but we see also uh, the challenges and the complexity of identity. Not only what we project, but sometimes even who we believe ourselves to be. Uh, 
This is all important because although these illustrations are, are, are not the foundation, but the Bible itself speaks about the importance of having a sense of identity. And it's even included in our passage that we, our verse that we looked at this morning. Now, at a quick glance, you might say, the verse that we looked at this morning doesn't really tell us much of anything. Isn't it kind of like, hello, and then somebody's supposed to extrapolate from that? And I would suggest to you that there's more there than meets the eye, although some of the things may be a little confusing. I mean, the guy just begins, James, that's all he tells us. And making it all the more complicated is if you look at the Greek, uh, those of you who can read Greek, you have to take my word for it if you don't, uh, it actually begins and he says, Jacob. In the Greek, he identifies himself as Jacob. Now, I had, that's for a long time had my head spinning, and so since we're beginning this series, I was looking at a number of commentators saying, oh, how, do we, how do we justify that if we can't even get the name right? How's it tough? How's it, how is it that we're supposed to believe anything that, that comes after this? And I looked at a number of commentaries, and you'd be amazed at how many commentators just skip that all entirely. Don't even talk about it. Some of them gave ideas of how we might reconcile these things, and it just didn't seem plausible, but they're smarter than I am, so maybe they're right, and I just didn't get it. But there was one commentator, Craig Blumberg, who did say this that I thought made sense. The Greek name for James might easily come down to English as Jacob, but in Latin, the alternate rendering, Jacobus, was delivered alongside Jacobus, so with an M instead of a B, whatever reason in Latin, so that a number of modern European languages now have two male names that came from the same linguistic root. So those of you who have uh, come from a family that has both James and Jacob, your parents were not particularly creative. You have the same root name. Regardless of whether this guy is James or Jacob, it doesn't really tell us much else, at least as we think about it. Who is he? Guy? Who is this guy, whether he's James or he's Jacob? Well, even we'll just go with uh, the, the name James, because that's going to be simple. I probably won't mention Jacob again uh, until, uh, well, somebody else named Jacob shows up. The New Testament has four men who go by the name of James, three of whom have some measure of prominence, and any of them, theoretically, could be the author of this book. The first one uh, is James, the, the father of Judas Iscariot. And so we probably can eliminate him from the consideration. We don't know anything about him. Just because there was a bad seed that came from the family doesn't mean that the parents themselves were necessarily. But you would tend to think that if it was the father of the one who betrayed Jesus, he would mention that in the writing. I'm James, my son you know, went on a wrong course, but I believe, and here's what you need to know. But the absence of that and the fact that we know nothing else other than he was the father of, of Judas would seem to indicate that he is not a likely candidate to have written a letter that was recognized by the apostles and by the early church as instructive for all of our lives. Another one that is in the New Testament is James, the, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the earliest of the 12 disciples, was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly would be a compelling uh, consideration as the author of this letter. The third one was another of the apostles, another of the, of the 12 disciples, James, known as the younger, or sometimes known as James the lesser. I'd kind of hate that if I was in the nickname, you know, you're the lesser, uh, you know, but um, who uh, was the son of Alphaeus. 
And while he was a disciple and while he was an apostle, we don't know a whole lot about him after other than that he was part of the 12 and therefore God used him. He was fruitful, he was faithful, uh, but there's not a lot that we know. And the fourth one is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Those are the four men named James that we know of from the New Testament, the ones who would be the the most likely candidates of them. Uh, James, the father of Judas, is probably, he was easily discarded. Nobody considers him a candidate for having written this. Uh, James the the younger or James the lesser, since we know very little about him, uh, the likelihood is that it's him, it seems minimal. Uh, James, the, the brother of, of John, would be a, a very likely candidate, except that he was martyred in 44 AD, and this letter dates somewhere into the, into the 60s. So that would have been very difficult for him to have been the author 16 years after his death. But the most obvious and the most likely and the most consistent with what we see here is uh, that it was James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author of this letter and who would have had no need to introduce himself more than just James, because at the time that this letter was written, he was a, a tremendously prominent figure in Jewish Christian circles. For him to have to give a, a, another name would have been, uh, you know, somewhat like a generation ago, Elvis is in the building. You didn't think of anybody but one person. Today, maybe it would be LeBron or Trump. Different reasons, just trying to give a name here. So that, that's... That was how prominent this man was. And so when he wrote, this would be the first one that people came to people's minds. Now, what's really interesting about that is that he had come to this level of prominence. And yet, during Jesus' earthly ministry, neither James nor his brothers, other brothers or sisters, they didn't believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah. In fact, the scriptures tell us on a couple of occasions, they were quite irritated with Jesus about this. We think of two, I think of two incidents in, in particular that you, you find in, in the gospel accounts. The first of which is when Jesus had begun his ministry and gained a little bit of notoriety, and yet he wasn't going to Jerusalem yet. And we're told in the scriptures that his brothers were encouraging him to go to Jerusalem. And the context of that would suggest that it wasn't that they were thinking, look, you're great and people need to hear about you. It was more of a You think you're great, and if you are who you're claiming to be, the the promised Messiah, well, wouldn't it make sense to go to Jerusalem? I mean, you know, you do your best business on Main Street. If if you're trying to make sure that people know something, you know, you're not going to hang out in some backwater town. You're going to L.A. or you're going to New York or maybe to Atlanta or whatever. You're going someplace where there are people and where there is media and where you can get the attention and that your message can get out. And so his brothers, not because they were believing at that point in time, but because they just were saying, let's just get it over with and get over yourself. They were encouraging him to go to Jerusalem and Jesus saying, it's not time for me to do that. And then there's another time that when Jesus had gained even more popularity and people were hoarding around him and Jesus was saying things that was causing quite the scandal, that there were people who were in need of hearing the message of the gospel and that the promised Messiah had come who were flocking to him and other people were scandalized uh, by him and were told that while he was uh, uh, engaged in his ministry, uh, that his mother and his brothers uh, had come to, uh, uh, to town and somebody tells Jesus that they're outside and they thought, we're told the pastor says, they came to try to get him out of there because they all thought he was nuts. 
And so James didn't even believe in his own brother. That seems to have radically changed after the resurrection. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. That's all that we know. But I think that's probably all that's needed. Your brother who you saw crucified and buried is now standing there before you. And James believed. It's really amazing, though, that James gained quite a lot of notoriety in his own right. Perhaps it's because he and Jesus grew up and had shared the the same Bible training. But James was known to be a very pious man. He developed the reputation later in his life. His nickname was Old Camel Knees because people who knew him said that his knees were so knotted and whatever, they resembled a camel and his knees got that way, not from some old football injury, but because of the amount of time that he spent on his knees praying. He prayed so frequently on his knees that it reshaped his leg. He was passionate about the Torah and faithfulness to God. He was unquestionably one of the leaders or the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was recognized by the other apostles as an apostle, not one of the original 12, not the replacement for Judas, but he was recognized as an apostle, one who had seen Christ Jesus resurrected, who had believed and had been empowered and set apart in order to lead the church and to speak and to teach. There's even some who believe that he was elected at one point to be the high priest in Jerusalem. Now, that is questionable, it's debatable, and it's probably not accurate, but it is believed in some Messianic Christian circles. At the time that James was engaged in ministry, and as the church was at times flourishing and sometimes ebbing just because of just the nature of persecution and of people, uh, the priesthood in Jerusalem was recognized as historically corrupt. We read about both the piousness of of James and of the uh, corruption of the priesthood in Josephus and other historians that were not Christians. But the priesthood was so corrupt and James was so committed to to the Lord and to the Word and to the Torah uh, that it's not inconceivable that the people would have elected him to be the high priest. Now, it is also questionable because James is so committed to the Torah that James would have accepted even had he been elected uh, because all of the priests were to come from the line of Levi or the Levites, and James came from the tribe of Judah. And so the likelihood is he would have said, I'm not qualified, I don't fit. Jesus might have been uh, one who was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, uniquely and specifically called, uh, but James was normally born, normally born again by believing in Jesus Christ. But one of the things that we see is this was an incredible, incredible man, probably rooted in the faith and the tradition, and then with eyes opened at the resurrection, after the resurrection, by the encounter of his risen brother. Deepened his devotion, bore fruit in his life, developed a tremendous reputation, and earned and was appointed to positions of significance and importance. But it's perhaps because of all of that that I'm most stunned with what James says about himself in these opening words. Of all of the things that he could describe himself, I'm the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm the leader of the church, 
maybe I'm the high priest or former high priest, high priest emeritus, whatever the title goes for that. James describes himself simply as James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, scholars say that the way that is worded here, this is not servant of God and Jesus Christ, but it's really a a connection of the two. In other words, he's serving God by serving Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, a recognition of Jesus Christ as God. And that's worth a study in itself, but we're not going to go there this morning. But just the fact that James's identity, James's self-identity, the way that he identifies himself, the way that apparently that he looks at himself, first and foremost is, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And I am amazed at that. I'm even more amazed when you consider the, the word in, in the Greek there is, is the word doulos, and slave is a better translation of it. One uh, Bible scholar uh, says it this way, uh, servant, um, while not a bad translation, it does not quite capture the essence of the Greek word doulos. Slave preserves the sense of Greek uh, better than servant. And so what James is saying here, that's not translated uh, in our scripture, not wrongly translated servant, but it's probably easier for our Western ears to hear servant than slave because slavery uh, brings all sorts of connotations into our mind. Uh, it brings to mind bondage. It brings to mind lack of freedom. It brings to mind oppression. And so translators, not wrongly, but not thoroughly, uh, use the word Servant. The slave is a servant, but not all servants are slaves. Probably the best rendering of, of the word uh, is, is bond servant, which is used in a number of different translations. A bond servant does give the fuller picture of what James is saying and how James identifies himself. We know what a bond servant is. We tend to call it indentured servant in our Western ears. We, we know of that in terms of our history, people who had founded just down the road. Uh, many of them came over because they had their debts uh, purchased by somebody and they were sent to go as an investment to, to bring money back to people in England. We think of it in other terms that we don't use the term, but it's essentially the same thing. Some of you who went to one of the military academies or you did ROTC, you are expected to serve a certain amount of time until whatever investment our government put in you was essentially paid off. Others of you went to school and, got, uh, and then got out of school and you went to a job and they gave you special training. They gave you skills that they knew sooner or later you might use in, for some other company or to start a company of your own. But because they paid for that special training, you were expected to work for them for a certain period of time until they recouped the investment and they were fine if uh, you had moved on. You were not a servant in perpetuity. You were a servant, you were an employee until your debt essentially was paid off. And so we understand the idea of bond there. A bond is somebody who pledges and pays your debt for you, and then you belong to them until that debt is paid off. Now, the problem that James has and that you and I have is that we also are debtors. We are debtors to God because of our sin. Sin is a debt that must be paid back. But any sin, even one sin, if that was all we had against a holy and perfect God, is 
incalculable and unpayable, and therefore not only it warrants death, but if you were to get otherwise, you'd have a life sentence for one. And none of us have only one sin. It affects everything that we are and everything that we do. And so James is a bondservant to Jesus Christ. He's going to serve uh, Jesus Christ for all of his life until the debt is paid off, which means all of his life and then all of eternity. And yet, James doesn't say this in any kind of a lamenting way. This is his identity. This is the power that drove him to both piousness and fruitfulness in his life. He said he understands who he is, and because he understands who he is, that he is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, it freed him. It shaped him. It empowered him. In a very real sense, James here is saying, I have a gospel identity. James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that's his identity. And at the same time as he's doing that, when he reminds himself of this, he's saying, I'm preaching the gospel to myself. When he declares it in the writing, he's saying, here's who I am. I'm declaring a a gospel message. I am one who has been purchased despite my sin. My debt has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, who has now made me his own. That's the gospel message. And the reason that James doesn't see this as, all right, is because he understands the nature of his offense against God. He understands his status before a holy God if he was left to his own. And therefore, rather than seeing being a servant as something that he's just destined to, he sees it as the reason and the power for his destiny. Thinking about it in this way, not looking back in history or putting yourself in the position of those poor people who, you know, through whatever circumstances they had the debt and, you know, somebody paid it off and now they were indebted to those people and just feels like such misery. Put yourselves in the shoes of those people in the moments before their debt had been paid off. Whatever the circumstances, they had nothing. They were bankrupt. They were not even able to provide food for their family or or a home to live in. They were homeless and they had no hope. There's no way. Where are we going to turn? How are we going to live? How am I going to provide for my family? I mean, the weight of that, think about that for just a moment. Because that's where people who were destitute were. Now, all of a sudden, some guy comes up or some family comes up that is incredibly wealthy and saying, hey, I see the situation that you're in. Tell you what, I'm going to bail you out. And then we're just going to figure out what the debt is and you're going to work for me for a while until that debt is paid off. But while you're working for me, I'm going to make sure that you have a roof over your head, that your family provided for, that you have healthy meals and everybody goes, your kids go to college, whatever. Everything that you could possibly need is going to be covered for. Now imagine that the servant, uh, the master, or the person who has bought your debt is not just somebody who's uh, out there trying to accrue property for himself, which is the problem with the American slavery system. It was based on race and it was chattel and people were 
were treated as if they were lesser in humans. In the Hebrew system, although uh, when, the, when the Jewish people occasionally would have their bond servants, it, it said that they treated them almost the same, or the same in some cases, as if they were family. So once somebody's debt was paid off, or whatever reason they came to work for somebody, they were added to the family. So imagine that the person who is bailing you out not only provides what you need and makes promise for your future, but he is good and he is gracious, and he is gentle, and he is encouraging, and provides more than you would ever ask or even imagine. In that moment, are you feeling like, okay, well, I can try to navigate life on my own with a debt that I cannot repay, a future that is not only uncertain, but is going to be devastating for my family and everybody else who is around me? Or are you going to see that this is hope? This is hope for my future. This is my life. And the moment the offer is made, no doubt, if you are in that position, if you rightly assess that you are destitute on your own with no hope in the future, somebody willing to bail you out, and then knowing that that person is good and gracious, you're going to thank God, not think, okay, seven years of drudgery. And this seems to be the mindset that James very definitely has about himself as he is speaking here. Because James says, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that's who I am. And he's delighted about it and he wants to share uh, with everybody what that means. And for James, it means joy because he knows that he's redeemed. It means joy because he knows that he's now united with somebody who is good and gracious, loving, caring, and all wise. So James is a bond servant. And so bond is the key for us understanding that this is a gospel identity. And servant is simply the life that is lived out in response to that identity. Because we are reminded, and James certainly understood, that we are not our own. We have been bought for a price. We have been redeemed. Our debt has been paid off. We now are indentured, but to God himself. And as the Apostle Paul says, and the life I now live, I don't live just for myself. I live in and through and for my Lord Jesus Christ which is the basis of his hope and encouragement, anticipation. There is nothing too difficult for the one who has bailed you out, the one who has paid your bond, the one who has adopted you into his family. But he is now our Lord. So when you look into the mirror, who do you see? What is the identity of the one who is looking back at you? I have no doubt for most everybody in here, a lot of really good and true things come to mind. 
For those of you who look in the mirror and the one looking back, there's not many good and true things. There probably should be more good and true things that you know to be of yourself. But none of them is greater than this, that you have been loved by Jesus Christ. And if you claim to be in Christ, that you now have had your bond paid and you are also a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the identity that we need to remind ourselves of. It's the one that empowers James. It's the one that, in a, interestingly, not only James, but Jude as well, who was another one of Jesus's half-brothers. They're the only two of the epistle writers uh, that identify themselves solely as the servants of Jesus Christ, as the slaves of Jesus Christ. Which means that we certainly have other identities. The other apostles recognize them. But the two people who were closest, the two people who could have said, yep, I'm the brother of the king. They said, what I want to remind myself of, what I need to remind myself of, what I want you to see when you look at me, no matter what other things you might think of me, is that I have been purchased by Jesus Christ and I am no longer my own. This is our hope and our salvation. You and I are bond servants of Jesus Christ if we claim to be in Jesus. That's who we are. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for these simple and profound words. And I pray that you would impress them upon ourselves. For those who are here that these words seem hard and difficult and challenging, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them that Jesus, as he calls a people to himself, says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, help us all to experience that. That as we yield ourselves to you as not only Savior, but as Lord, that we would find that whatever we are engaged in, even legitimately hard things, because we belong to you, because you will never leave us nor forsake us, because you are at work in us and through us, we will find that you enable us to not only to endure, but to overcome, to thrive, and to bear fruit. For those who are here that already understand this and who, like James, already recognize that being a servant of Jesus Christ is part of identity, Lord, I pray that you would grant to them even more joy as they consider all of the promises that are accompanied by being in Christ that we and the whole world would praise your name. This we pray in Christ, our Redeemer, our King. Amen.